Well, all right, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well uh, today. If you don't know me, of course, my name is Billy. Uh, I get the privilege to be uh, one of the pastors here, and that's an incredible honor for me to get to serve uh, in that way. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 6. That's where we'll be this morning. While you turn there, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, the next couple of weeks are going to be a busy, busy time for us here. Uh, really exciting things going on. Next week, uh, we have our annual Easter egg extravaganza. Let me get that right. Um, this is going to be a time for us after the 11 o'clock service uh, to really get together as a church family. It's also a great opportunity to invite others. There'll be Easter egg hunt, bounce houses, uh, food. I mean, everything you can think of that would be just an incredible time uh, for us as a church family. And I want to encourage you to invite uh, someone uh, to come. And so I think it's an incredible opportunity uh, to do that. I also want to encourage you uh, to stay at the 9 o'clock service if you can. And so uh, we need to make some room at the 11. You guys already know that. You guys do a great job of being here uh, at 9 to help us alleviate uh, just a rush at 11. Most uh, new church people will come at 11 before they'll come at 9 for some reason. And so you guys help us out and continue to do that. Also, just be aware, uh, next Sunday and Easter Sunday, there's going to be an all-call uh, for our connectors. And so if you serve as a blue connector or an orange connector in the kids area, uh, we're going to have everybody scheduled to serve. And so will you please plan on helping uh, us uh, traditionally uh, these next two Sundays? We will have more people come through our doors in the next two Sundays than any other of the Sundays uh, in the entire year. And so be praying. We're praying that God would bring uh, new people and that God would move uh, on their hearts uh, and that God would just get the glory uh, for saving people and really just drawing people into his family. Uh, and so we want to be uh, his hands and feet in that. So please pray and uh, please serve and please continue to come to the nine. So uh, today, John chapter 6, we'll be continuing on in our series uh, that we've entitled uh, The Real Jesus. And so if you've been here, you know we've been just walking through uh, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the gospels. These are biographies of the life of Christ. And so one of the things that I've been challenging us as a church to uh, really uh, dig into is what do you believe about Jesus? Uh, do you believe what you believe, what you think about him, or do you actually believe what scripture has to say about him? Because what scripture teaches is that our joy, our life, our satisfaction is found not in following a Jesus that we've made up, but following a Jesus that he has revealed himself to be uh, through the scriptures. And so what we've been doing this entire year has been just journeying through the life of Christ and learning uh, what he has to say about himself. Because the most important thing about Christ is what he has to say about uh, himself. And so today uh, we got a doozy of a sermon and a doozy of a passage. And so we're going to dive in and there's going to be some incredible truths here uh, to help us. So let me pray one more time for us. And we'll jump in. So, Father, we do, um, God, we just love you. And, Lord, we are thankful for your word. And, God, we're thankful that you have given it to us, God, that you chose to reveal yourself to us through uh, this word. So, Lord, I pray as we open this passage this morning and, God, we read it and, and talk through it and teach it, God, that you would just open our eyes to understand it, God, to see you for who you are. And, God, as we do that, would you help us respond accordingly in each of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
So verse 35, uh, Blake kind of hit this a little last week, but I felt like this was the place to pick up to continue out the rest of the chapter. So verse 35 says this, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Somebody say bread of life. Bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him, the Father, who sent me. And this is the will of God who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And so again, Jesus makes this incredible statement that we dove into a little bit last week. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so this is very reminiscent of the woman at the well in chapter 4, where he looks at her and says, I am living water. Whoever drinks of me uh, will never thirst again. And so we see Jesus compare himself to food and water. He even does the shelter. He uses these physical metaphors to explain who he is on a spiritual basis. And he does this all the time. And so this is uh, the first I am statement in the book of John. And he's actually going to give us seven I am statements. Things like, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And so he gives us these, and we'll study them as we go through the book of John. But here he says, I am the bread of life. And all of these I am statements are revealing the identity of Christ. Remember, the main purpose of the book of John, John's already given it to us in John chapter 21. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He wants us to believe. He wants us to know the identity of Christ and put our faith and belief in Him. And He's with these I Am statements, what He's doing is linking Himself to the great I Am in the Old Testament. And so for many of us, we don't really know the Old Testament well, but for these Jewish people, they knew the Old Testament very, very well. And so as soon as he said, I am, their minds would have went to Exodus where Moses goes uh, out of Egypt. He goes into the wilderness and God says, hey, you tell them that I am sent you when you go back to deliver my people. They would have known that. And they would have known that that was the God. And so what Jesus is doing is linking himself and saying, I'm the same God of Moses, and I've come to be the second person of the Trinity, Christ the Son. And so all of these statements are incredible, and we're going to talk about them. And they all come with incredible promises right after them so that we can believe and apply them into our life. For those that come to Christ and believe that he is the bread of life, Jesus makes three promises. He says, uh, one, that they shall have eternal life. Now in church, we talk a lot about eternal life, and that's a good thing, but many times it can kind of lose its 
awe factor because we talk about it so much. Can you think uh, with me for a second? Eternal life is a big deal. And Jesus says, if you believe in him as the bread of life, you will receive eternal life, life forever, abundant life forever, for eternity, not just the years that we have on this earth, but eternal life forever. And then John 17 tells us that we can even go ahead and begin to experience this eternal life. Because life forever is, is good, but life forever with Jesus is the goal. That's the better, right? John 17, 3, eternal life is to know Christ, the Son of God, is to know him and be with him. Second promise is that he will raise them up on the last day. So we don't have to worry about death anymore because Christ has promised the same way he resurrected from the grave, physical death has no power over him, has no power over us as believers, and that he will raise us up, a promise from the mouth of Christ. He will raise us up on the last day. That will set some of us free in this room. If death brings anxiety and, and, and just uh, worry, then we can look at Christ and he looks at us and says, I'll raise you up. I'm going to raise you up. There's no need to worry. And then third promise that our deepest longing and hunger that's deep in our souls will be satisfied in him. That's what he's saying is that the deepest longing, this eternal hunger that we have in our hearts, in our souls, will be satisfied with him because he is the bread of life. And so all of these promises come together in Christ. And we're going to talk a little bit more about those uh, here at the end. But let's keep moving uh, forward. So these are just massive, massive promises. And the crazy thing is in this passage, these people, most are going to miss it. They're going to miss the promises. They're going to miss the statement. They're going to miss Christ. And even though they had seen his miracles and they had seen Christ face to face and had an encounter with him, they're going to reject him as Lord and they're going to refuse to believe in him. And we see them respond in verse 41. Listen to how they respond. It says that this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say that I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up on the last day. And it is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. And no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God, and only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. And so we see here Jesus is just pouring out his heart. He's given one of the best salvation sermons ever here. And these Jews are just missing it. They're grumbling. And they're saying, what do you mean you came down from, from heaven? You're Jesus. Like, we know you. We saw you. You're born of Mary. Joseph is your dad. You're from Nazareth. But notice what Jesus does. He, he doesn't even acknowledge their grumbling. He goes straight back into his salvation message, and he says uh, he just ignores it, and he goes into his teaching, uh, almost as if he's more concerned with teaching his disciples than he is having a conversation with Jews that he already knows are not going to believe in it. 
So as we read this, we need to be thinking that way. Jesus is beginning to teach his disciples about some things. And here he's teaching them about salvation. And he makes some incredible statements. And some of these statements are going to make people in this room uncomfortable. And I want you to know that. And I want you to know it's not me making these statements. This is Christ. And so what Christ says is true. So if he says it's true, then we must believe it to be true even if we can't make sense of it in our heads, in our finite minds. So let's read them. Verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. That one's not too bad. Verse 44. But no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. That one may be a little more uncomfortable for us, right? So unless the Father draws us in, we can't come to him. Verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. So Jesus, He wants us to have eternal life. Look to the Son, believe. The one who believes has eternal life, but He's also telling us that nobody can come to Him unless the Father draws Him. Verse 37, and all those the Father gives me will come to me. So apparently... The Father has already given a group of people to the Son before he came to earth. Now put that in your noodle and just cook it for a minute. Like, hold on. Like, Jesus already has a group of people that he came to earth to save. The Father has already given him a group of people. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. So these verses teach us some very, very important and profound things about salvation. And I want you to write these down. Number one, God is sovereign over salvation. Sovereign is just a big church word that means he is in control over salvation. From start to finish, it is a work of God. Salvation is a miracle. It is a divine work of God. The Bible teaches in Ephesians 1-4 that God chooses us for salvation. We don't choose God. He chooses us. Ephesians 1-4 God chose us in him when? Before the foundations of the world. Before any of this existed, God had chosen you and I, if we're believers, to come to him and be Christians. That, that just blow, should blow your mind. That's absolutely crazy to think about. Not only that, but God appoints us. What does that mean? Acts 13, 48. There are appointed times when God saves people. Listen to this, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, this is after the preaching of the gospel, it says, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So God is appointing people and they're hearing the message of Christ and they're giving their life to Jesus. They're believing in him and they're receiving eternal life. But not only that, he initiates, God initiates this work of salvation in our lives. We see this again in the book of Acts, Acts 16, 14. It says, one of those listening to the message was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. And she was a dealer in purple cloth. Listen to this. She was a worshiper of God, not a Christian. She just worshiped an unknown God. But listen, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Who opened her heart? The Lord opened her heart. She heard the message of the gospel. The Lord opened her heart, and she responded. And so for some of us, 
This may be the first time that we've ever heard this truth. This was me. Nobody ever taught me this uh, at the church that I grew up in, right? It was like, yeah, you just come down front, make a decision, pray a prayer, right? And I always thought salvation was just me coming to Jesus when I pleased, like when I felt like coming. When I got done running to the end of my life and I got through with all that, I could come to Jesus and be saved anytime that I wanted to. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? No, it is. We don't have control over God. Like we don't look to God and say, God, save me. Like that's not how this works. God saves us. He does a divine work in our life. This is how the Bible teaches salvation. Salvation is a God-orchestrated miracle. He initiates it. He accomplishes it. He finishes the work in our life. And no man will come to Jesus or woman will come to Jesus unless the Father divinely draws them in. This is a mind-blowing truth. And this is how I know. When somebody gets saved at our church and they say, I want to surrender my life to Christ, which happens on a weekly basis, that it isn't me doing anything and it isn't them doing anything. God has opened the heavens, spoken down into their life, and drawn them into himself and said, hey, you, you believe I am who I say I am. Now come and follow me. And they respond and they do it. It's incredible. Number two, though, Jesus also teaches that man is responsible to believe in Christ. What do I mean? That means man has full accountability to believe. So when a man rejects Jesus or receives Jesus, they are responsible for that decision and they will be held accountable for it. That's why we don't see ever in the Bible God being held responsible for man's rejection of God. Make sense? Like hell would not be a place of existence if there wasn't a need to punish people for rejecting God. That makes sense? And so God never sees it as, oh, uh, Billy rejected him, so that's God's fault, my fault, that I rejected. No, he looks at me and he says, no, Billy is condemned because he is rebelling, rebelling and rejecting God. Verse 40, listen to a couple verses to help understand. For my Father's will, so what is God's will? is that everyone, everyone, say everyone, who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Verse 47, but very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Verse 35, then Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever, say whoever, comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. The key word in there is whoever comes to Jesus. Whoever comes to Jesus, that's the person that receives eternal life. We also see other verses in Scripture that emphasize human responsibility in salvation. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And if you think about this any deeply, it should bring you to a question. So which is it? Does God save us or do we choose to believe? And the answer is yes, right? We see both of these. This is a tension in the Bible, and we want this tension. It's not something to argue about. It's a tension to accept 
and be in awe of God and who he is. So here's our conclusion. Number three, both God's sovereignty and human's responsibility are involved in salvation. Although God is sovereign, he saves us by grace through faith. God reveals himself to us and we see him and respond in faith. God opens our blinded eyes, the Bible says, and when we see him for who he is, we respond in faith. This is the tension in the Bible that we see between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. There's been much debate over this, uh, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and where they meet, and it's been argued for a long, long time, and to be honest, I don't know that we're ever going to fully comprehend it, because we're, we're looking at an infinite, all-knowing, outside-of-time God who, who is not like us. And how he chooses us before the foundation of the world and still calls us to come and we come, I don't know how it happens, but it happens. And man's responsibility and God's sovereignty is at work in both of those. But what we can comprehend and what is clear in Scripture is this. God saves us and he deserves all of the glory for our salvation. At no point does the Bible point to you and me and our choice to have glory in, right? Man, I made the great choice to, 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 to pursue God, and it's the great choice that I did. No, 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 God opened your eyes, and God saved you, right? That's the thing. God came to me when I was a wicked sinner. God chose to show me who he was, reveal himself to me, and call me to himself. And in that calling, I chose to follow him. God saves us. He deserves the glory. And if we are giving any glory for our salvation, to ourselves, and we're not looking at it, salvation the way God does, nor the way the Bible does. And the clearest passage to me in this whole process is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and I want to read it to you because it's really, really good. Paul says this. He says he's explaining to the Ephesians their salvation story. This is all of our testimony. As for you, he says, you were dead, somebody say dead, in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So here's the greatest but in the entire world, right? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can what? Boast. So whatever our understanding of salvation is in this room, I hope it's that one, that our boast is in Christ alone. This is why we sing amazing grace, and we sing it to the top of our lungs, that God has saved us, and we praise him for that. The only thing we brought to our salvation was the sin that put Christ on the cross. 
And this biblical understanding of salvation starts with a correct understanding of our sin. And I want to do this a little bit. The Bible teaches that we are not just sick in our sin. The Bible teaches that we are dead in our sin. Listen to me. What does it mean to be dead, spiritually dead? That means you can't do anything. You have no ability to do anything. The dead person can't do anything. The Bible says we are enslaved to sin, that sin has absolute control over us and we have no way out of it on our own. This is a condition and no person will ever choose God when they're in this condition. Because we're broken people by nature. We love sin. We don't just sin because we are a sinner. We are a sinner, so we sin. Our whole life is about ourselves and not about God. And we're blind to the fact that that's even wrong because it feels right. And all we care about is what feels right or our opinion of what we are doing. And apart from God acting on us, we have no ability on our own to see clearly nor desire a good God or submitting to a good God at all. The last thing a sinful person wants to do is humble themselves on their knees and surrender to the kingship of someone else. It is an absolute miracle when God opens our eyes to, this is God, this is who he is, and I want to lay my life down and surrender to him. This is salvation. This is what the Bible teaches us is salvation. By nature, we are sinners, children of wrath, enemies of God, and we enjoy this rebellion against God. Theologians call this the doctrine of depravity. That's what it is. We are depraved in our sinful nature. And once we understand this truth, it's then that we can begin to see why salvation has to begin and has to end with God. Because it's only when God saves us, only when God draws us, only when God opens our eyes up and he gives us this gift of faith that we look and we say, yes, I want that. I want to turn away from this nature that I know and that I love because this is better and this is Jesus and he is God and I want to follow him for the rest of my days and I want to surrender my life and turn from this and turn to that. This is what biblical salvation looks like. It's not a prayer you pray and can continue to live how you're going to live. It's a surrendering. It is a king. He is a king, and we surrender to the king. Verse 48, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue. So this is the second time they're arguing. The first was, we know you, you're mom and dad, you're you're Joseph and Mary's son, right? Now the second argument. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Which is a very interesting statement. We probably would have brought that up too. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. 
Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. You thought they were confused uh, with him just coming from heaven. Now he's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. These people are already having trouble making the connection between the physical and the spiritual. Now Jesus is encouraging cannibalism? Like, what, what is he talking about? No, it's, it's it, there, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Like, what is he talking about? Well, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. It's important that we understand that. Consuming Christ in this passage is the equivalent of trusting in him, of, of, of receiving him, of, of faith existing uh, in our lives. He's wanting them to think back to the manna in the wilderness in Exodus. How many, how many of us know the story of the manna in the wilderness in Exodus? Anybody raise your hand? All right, cool. So some of our people uh, know that. In the book of Exodus, uh, you know, you have Moses, who is the leader of the Israelites at this point, and uh, he has now delivered the Israelites, God's people, out of slavery uh, through the Red Sea, and they come into this desert. And they stay there a couple days, and if you know anything about a desert, it's hot, uh, there's not a lot of food, and there's no water, right? So it doesn't take very long for the Israelites who had been enslaved in Egypt, and slavery's bad, but at least they're feeding you, right? You're feeding, you're eating, and so, of course, the Israelites are like, what? God, did you just bring us out here? Moses, did you bring us into the wilderness and the desert to die? Like, we have no food, we have no drink, you're just leaving us here, and, and so they're grumbling and they're complaining, and, and so Moses goes to God, and he says, God, here's where we are, I need your help. And so what happens then is that God does something incredible. Through Moses, what he does is he rains down bread from heaven. And every morning, listen, for 40 years, you wake up and there's fresh bread from heaven laying out there. And every night, God covers the ground in quail. And some of y'all don't like quail, but quail are great. And if you fry them and you put a little hot sauce on them, they're really good. And so what happens is these quail are here. And so God is, what he's doing is providing. He also provided water and man, he provided everything for his people. For 40 years in the desert, God literally provides what they need. And he doesn't provide more than enough. So listen, here's, the sta- here's kind of the, the, the way he did it. He said, you get enough bread for the day. And you eat your fill, and then all the bread would go bad by the time they woke up the next morning. And guess what God would do the next morning? Provide new fresh bread. And so what was he trying to teach the Israelites? He was trying to teach them that he was going to take care of them, that he was their God and they were his people and that he was Jehovah Jireh and that he was going to provide for their every need when they need it. Not, a, not too much, not too little, but just the amount. And he was going to do it day after day so that they would begin to trust him and to lean into him. And so the same way God provided for his Israelites in the desert, their physical needs were met. Now Jesus is busting on the scene to a group of Jewish people who would have known that story. And what he's saying is that I've come to be the bread of life for your spiritual needs. So the same way God provided for them in the desert, their physical hunger and their physical need, now I'm coming and I'm going to provide for your greatest need, 
which is your spiritual need for salvation, your spiritual need for eternal life. And that's what Jesus is telling them here, is what it takes to be saved. This is the way to eternal life. Believe in me. Trust in me. Not just some shallow way, but like literally, not just like Jesus exists, but that they have to internalize him. They have to become one with him in the same way that you become one with food when you consume it. The easiest way to think about this example for us today is through uh, the practice of communion, right? If you were here last week, uh, we took communion as a church body, right? And so what that means is we are literally taking the body of Christ and taking the blood of Christ and we are consuming it saying we trust in these things, the blood and the body of Christ to provide salvation for us. This is our story. This is our song. We're going to sing it and we're going to live it and we're going to remember it until Jesus comes back. And so the Bible actually teaches some really, really cool stuff about communion. And so I want to show you this. The Bible teaches that when we partake in communion, we actually participate in Christ. You ever thought about that? Just think about when we're taking communion, this is why it's such a big ordinance for the church. When we take of communion together as the body of Christ, it says we are actually participating in Christ. We are becoming one with Christ. There is a union. It's like a celebration of a union, almost like a wedding ceremony is what the picture of it is. But listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving... Uh, for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, and we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And then Jesus said here in verse 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. There's a significant joining of union as us, as the body of Christ, we're all becoming one and participating in Christ. You see, uh, belief in Christ leads to union with Christ and union with the body of Christ. This is why a, a person that's a Christian need not be separated from the church. Because to be with Christ means to be one with Christ and one with Christ's body. This is the picture in Scripture. The words in Christ are found 70 times in the New Testament alone. 33 in the book of Ephesians. And they're very, very important when it comes to understanding our identity in Christ. I want you to listen to a few examples, a few Scriptures. Galatians 2.20 says, I, this is speaking as a Christian, I have been crucified with Christ. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, say in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. The new nature, the new union with Christ I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So when God looks at us in Christ, in union with Jesus, now he does not condemn us anymore. 
Because our condemnation was in our flesh. Our sin was counted against us when we were separated from Christ. But now that we're in Christ, now we are seen as righteous and holy and perfect because Christ is now in us. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should now walk in them. This is the glorious reality of the gospel. If we are a Christian, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and this radically changes everything, everything. It means that now when God sees you, he doesn't see you, he sees Christ. So when you bow your knees to pray, your access to God is not based on you and your religious performance, it's based on Christ, and he was perfect. So this should lead us to approach God with confidence, changes everything about us. It changes the way God views us. It changes how we see ourselves. It changes how we face difficult situations. Can you imagine if you walked into the most difficult situation in your life right now and you walked in and this was the thought in your mind, I don't know how we're going to get through this, but I know the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in me and he's in my life and he's committed to me. And he's going to help me and sustain me through this. You may not understand every detail, but what you do is you're at peace because you know that God is with you and for you, and he's going to help you get through it. It changes everything. Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples now were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. He's trying to get them to see. you got to see through spiritual eyes that your flesh is for no good. Like, Like your old flesh cannot see God. It doesn't understand God. It doesn't understand the teachings about God. Only the Spirit gives life. Listen to what he says. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit. And full of life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning, again, which of them did not believe and even who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them to come. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, this might be the worst ending to a chapter in the entire Bible. Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, who though one of the twelve, uh, who though he was one of the twelve, would later betray him. So again, kind of a sad ending to the whole story. And think about it. It was a day that had started with 20,000 people that were just excited because Jesus had taken a lunchbox, a couple sardines and a couple uh, cornbread muffins and just blew, just blew them up and to feed literally 20,000 people. And now uh, after that, They had seen his miracles, but now the crowd had began to leave because they didn't like the message that came behind the miracle. 
They didn't like the invitation to follow Christ. They didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They were fine with him as a miracle worker, but as Lord, no, God, I'm not interested in laying my life down and surrendering my life or bowing my knee to anybody. And so one by one, they began to go away until it was just Jesus and his 12. And then he looks at the 12 and he says, do you not want to go too? And, of course, Simon steps up and says the right thing, and Simon does it. And you'd think Jesus would be like, yeah, let's go, baby. And he looks and he says, yeah, 11 of you guys are chosen, but one of you is the devil. Can you imagine that huddle? You know what I mean? It's like, all right, who is it? Like, what, what? You know, Judas is just twiddling his thumb. I mean, you know, what does that even feel like? But Jesus' response, you know, with, with all these people walking away is interesting. Does he panic? Like, does he go into an anxiety attack? No, he acts and knows already who's going to choose him and who's not. So it's not even a surprise to him. He's known all along who would follow him. And he uses it as an opportunity to teach his disciples. And he says, hey, there's going to be a lot of people that respond in a lot of different ways to me. And not all the time is it going to be a good response. And here he shows us. Three ways that people can respond to Jesus, and I want you to write them down. The first is they'll desert him. They'll desert him. They may follow him for a while, just like the crowds. They may like him, and they may see his miracles and think, man, this guy's awesome, and they may get into the, the, into the fan base for a little bit. But then at some point, when, when, when things get hard, when following him becomes inconvenient, when his teaching disagrees with what we feel or what we think, Jesus says they'll walk away and they'll desert him. It's almost like the parable of the sower. If you've ever read the parable of the seeds scattered and people respond in different ways and there's only one type of person that believes and produces fruit. The others kind of look good for a while, but in the end they end up walking away. Second type is deception. And this one's kind of scary to even, even think about, but... Uh, this is Judas, right? He, he is deceived, right? He, uh, he, he considers the cost and knows who Jesus is, but in the end, he just decides, I'm not really going to surrender. I'm just going to fake it. And you look at that and you say, well, that sounds terrible, but we live in a time where a lot of people live this way. They, they, they clean up. They put on the Christian suit. They put on the Christian clothes, they talk like a Christian, they come to church on Sunday, and they just kind of fake it. But when it comes to truly following Christ, that's not who they are. They just continue to live behind closed doors in a way that's all about themselves. They never truly surrender to Christ. And then thirdly, we see devotion. So people will either desert him, they'll fall into deception, Or they'll devote their lives to follow him. This is what we see with Peter and the other ten. They counted the cost and they believed and they began to follow him wholeheartedly in public and in private. Were they perfect? No, but they followed him and they committed their lives. And I love this conversation. You don't want to leave too, do you, Jesus asked. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where shall we go? You are the one that has the words of eternal life. And we've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, there was a big difference between the crowd, Judas, and the disciples. A huge difference. 
The 11 disciples truly believed that Jesus was the Son of God. They believed that Jesus was who he said he was and that eternal life was found in him alone. And because of that, they committed their lives to follow him no matter what. It was their belief that Jesus was who he said he was. That abundant life, that eternal life was found in him alone. That when everything got hard and they didn't even understand the teaching that Jesus was, I mean, they were grumbling about it. But they said, hey, we aren't leaving because we believe you are who you say you are. This is where the foundation of biblical salvation and following Jesus begins. And so today, I want to just focus for a little time left. i got like five minutes, ten minutes. I want to focus on this question. If, if you, and I want to make it personal, if you and I truly believed that Jesus was the bread of life, how would it change your life or my life today? Like, if, I'm not saying, I know most of us in this room would say, Billy, I'm a Christian, bro. You're talking to people like I'm not a Christian. No, I'm talking to you as a Christian. I'm talking to you as a lost person that doesn't have a relationship with God. Wherever you are, I'm just asking. If you truly believed that Jesus was the bread of life, how would it change your life today? What would change? What would change in your life today? Because when Jesus says that he's the bread of life, There are a couple truths that come with that statement. I want to give them to you. The first truth is this. When he says, I'm the bread of life, the first thing that that means is that he alone can save us. Jesus is the bread of life, meaning only him can save us. Only he can be our savior. The second truth is this. Jesus is the bread of life. He alone can satisfy us. So not only can he save us, he can satisfy us, and then thirdly, he can sustain us, right? So just think about that. If I truly believe that Jesus is the bread of life, that he can save me, that he can satisfy the longings of my heart, and that he can sustain me for eternity, that not only can he save me, but he'll sustain me and raise me up in the last day. What would change about my life? What would change? And I want to give you a couple implications. The fact that he can save us would be followed with this implication. If I truly believe that Jesus was the bread of life and that he alone can save us, here's how it would imply and apply into my life. I, would look, I wouldn't look anywhere other than Jesus for salvation. Anywhere other than him. I'd see as hopeless. I wouldn't try to follow religious rules to try to earn my favor before God. I wouldn't try to be a good person based on somebody's standard or even my own personal standard. No, I would look to Christ for salvation because he alone can provide it. Secondly, if Jesus is the bread of life and he alone can satisfy us, then the implication of that is I wouldn't look anywhere other than Christ to satisfy me, because to look anywhere other than Christ to satisfy me really doesn't make sense at all. Because if I was created by God, for God, then the most logical conclusion that I could come to is that this longing that God has placed in my heart 
can only be satisfied in one place, and that's in a relationship with Christ. And so not only would I not look to something else to save me and earn me right standing before God, I would also stop looking for things of this world to satisfy the deep longings of my heart. I wouldn't look to money. I wouldn't look to success. I wouldn't look for uh, success of my children. I wouldn't look for uh, some sort of relationship or uh, job or the American dream or the perfect family or the approval of others. I wouldn't live my life thinking that those things could give me what only God could give me. And when you begin to just flex that out in your life, what happens is you begin to see there's areas of your life where you truly don't believe that Jesus is the bread of life. And how do I know that? Because I'm flexing those out in my own life. And today I want you to dig into that. And I want you to begin to think, where is it that you're looking other than Christ to give you what only he can give you? And then the last truth is that Jesus alone can sustain us. Only he can sustain us. And listen to me, if, if the implication of this is that if we believe this, then we would live a life of dependence and trust. I mean, again, it goes back to the Israelites in the wilderness. I mean, can you imagine being an Israelite in the Old Testament? You're in the wilderness for 40 years, no food, no water, waking up every day, and Jesus is just like the sun raises. He just rises up. He provides water and manna and quail for you every day for 40 years. That's 14,600 days in a row. That's most of our lives in this room. And every day you wake up and Jesus gives you exactly what you need. Not more than enough, just enough for each day so that you can learn to trust him. And so that you can learn to depend on him. You go to bed hungry thinking, man, is he going to do it again? And you wake up and guess what? He does it again. He provides over and over. He's never late. He's always on time. And this has just blown me away all week because if I believe that Jesus is the bread of life that can sustain me, then the way these Israelites lived and depended on him for physical food, guess what? I'll begin to live spiritually that way. I'll begin to live my life as if I need Christ every day. And listen, this is what God wants. This is what he wants. Listen, I read this and it just absolutely convicted me like crazy. I know it'll help you as well. Paul David Tripp says it this way. He says, listen, the lie of self-sufficiency is attractive to us all because we don't like to think of ourselves as weak and needy. We don't like to think of ourselves as dependent. We don't like to think of ourselves as fools who need to be rescued from ourselves. We like this story, the story of a self-made man. You know, the, the person who pulled himself out of the mire and made it on his own with no one to think but himself. But the message of the gospel is devastatingly humbling. It tells me that I am a hopeless, impossible, an irreversible uh, state apart from divine intervention. Even Adam and Eve could not make it on their own. Even though they were perfect people living in a perfect world and in a perfect relationship with God, they did not have the ability to do it on their own. So immediately after creating them, 
God began to give them his revelation because he knew that they would not figure life out on their own. They were dependent on the words of God in order to make proper sense out of life. They could not be what they were supposed to be or do what they were supposed to do without God's counsel and his help. Now, that was the state of people before sin entered into the world and did its internal and external damage. How much more is it true of us? Self-reliance is a lie that leads you nowhere good. You do not have what you need inside yourself to live as if you were created to live. So a God of tender grace comes to you in the person of Christ and offers you everything you need for life and godliness. And in grace, he is ever with you because he knows you never make it on your own. Never make it on your own. This is our God. Not only does he save us, not only does he satisfy us, but he's promised to sustain us. That should do something in our hearts. should lead us to worship. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. I don't know where you came into the room this morning, but here's what I know. We serve a good God. And for some of us in this room today, we need him to save us. But for others in this room, he's showing us that we're looking to other things to satisfy us. And he's drawing us to repentance in his kindness. And for others in this room, we're just in a place where we don't even know if we're going to make it. We're just tired and weary. And you need to hear the truth of God's word, that God is the bread of life that's going to sustain you. Don't give up. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Father, that's our prayer this morning. God, you are so good to us. God, would you humble us? God, wherever we are, God, wherever we tend to look to ourselves, whether it's salvation or satisfaction or sustaining ourselves, Lord, would you just draw us into to our knees this morning? And God, would you do a work in us that would lead us not to be dependent on ourselves, but to be dependent on you? And just like the Israelites in the, in, the, in the desert, would we wake up every day and remind ourselves that you are the bread of life and that you save us, that you satisfy us, and that you want to sustain us. And so if you're in this room today and you say, Billy, I need God to save me. I need Christ to save me. I've been trying to do it on my own. But today's the day you want to give your life to Jesus. If that's you in this room, I'll ask you to be bold because we want to talk to you. We want to pray with you. You just lift your hand right where you are and say, Billy, that's me. Today I want God to save my life. He's drawn me in, and I know because he's shown me who he is. And today I want to respond. Is that anybody in the room? I'll give you a second. You just raise your hand high. Billy, that's me. So, Father, would you do what you can do alone? And, God, would you draw us in? Would you change our hearts? And, God, lead us to dependence on you. God, would we trust you? And, God, would we sing to you and worship you because you are good and you deserve it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing?